Hello, everyone. I'm Alexander Rose. I'm the executive director here at the Long Now Foundation. And the idea of working with the synthetic biology space during the time of an epidemic like we're in, I believe is important. I think some of the advents of the technologies that are actually in the midst of a revolution around us all as as we speak, and I think some of what Jane is going to speak today will show you that that, that revolution is happening all around us right now. And she's going to give us a window into some of those, some of the kind of the bleeding edge of that revolution. And it will allow us to um, start talking about some of the ethics that are there and some of the ways that we might actually um, introduce ourselves into that time and the space to, uh, to to engage with it. So I'm very excited to, to be doing this as our first seminar back. The moment that we are in uh, is important for synthetic biology, and I also uh, am really excited to be restarting our, our series with Jane. This is an important moment for all of us to be thinking about the way biology and technology meet. Uh, so thank you, and uh, we will pass it over to Jane. Thank you very much. I'm Stuart Brand, the curator of this series of talks from the Long Now Foundation in San Francisco. The Long Now Foundation is a nonprofit dedicated to fostering long-term thinking and responsibility. It is entirely supported by donors and members like you. Thank you for taking the time to listen to these ideas. And if you haven't already, please consider becoming a member to help inspire long-term thinking for generations to come. This podcast is brought to you by Stripe, a company that is working to build the economic infrastructure of the internet. They help people start internet businesses and accept online payment from customers all over the world. Well, um, hi, Sander. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm, uh, I'm just delighted to be here. I have been a fan of Long Now since its very inception. In fact, I'm actually member number 26. You know, I, I have a really important question for everybody, and I think it's a perfect Long Now question. I think it's sort of a, a design thinking kind of question as well. Look forward to how technologies and biotechnologies play out, what impact that has on us as humans, as homo sapiens, and imagine what it is that you want us to evolve into, how you want us to be using these technologies, and what guidelines, what, what concerns, what guardrails do we need, what hopes and aspirations and dreams do you have for it? So look at what it looks like in the future, and then think back to where we are today. What do we need to be doing now? What do we need to be thinking about, talking about, planning for, stopping or starting or promoting or what have you, so that this vision of where we go in the future is one that we can all aspire to. It's one we can manifest as opposed to one that we fear. So the question is, let me just simplify it for you. You can answer any one of those you want, but the simplest version of the question is, what are the elements that you think belong in a manifesto for the future of our species? If this is all new to you, I'm going to take the next, you know, 45 minutes or so to map out what we're calling the neobiological frontier, which is how technology is pushing the boundaries of biology forward and the impact it's going to have on us as humans and as a planet um, and as interconnected biological systems. So then we'll have a chance for some Q&A 
uh, at the end and we can discuss your thoughts on the topic. Having said that, over the next five, 10, and 20 years, there are going to be developments at the intersection of biology and technology that will present us with some of the most profound and vexing choices our species has ever faced. And the tools of genetic engineering and synthetic biology are giving us unimaginable powers. Uh, and we have even more capabilities coming down the pike that are gonna completely transform our species. Five key technologies that really have led us to what we're calling the neobiological revolution. So it starts with genome sequencing. So we sequence, we read the first human genome in the year 2003, and at a cost, exorbitant cost. It started at 3 billion, it got down to 1 billion, it got down to 100 million. You know, the cost of sequencing a human genome has dropped to below $1,000 now. You know, we thought it was gonna take 60 years for the cost to drop that much, uh, and instead it's taken six or seven years. So this is just exploding the field. You know, in 2017, uh, we learned uh, that we invented the CRISPR technology, which was an opportunity to um, edit the human genome at a, a very low cost and with much higher level of efficiency and effectiveness than we'd ever had before. So we began to sequence everything. So we sequence human genome, we sequence um, cancer tumors. So that helps us find the best way of treating a particular uh, tumor. We're sequencing bacterial DNA and discovering all about our microbiome. We're, we're sequencing plants, we're sequencing food. Um, there's so many things happening uh, with that technology. The second is imaging technology. And um, you know, advances in our understanding of, of how to work with physics combined with the um, artificial intelligence ways we have of parsing the images that we're generating have allowed us to look more deeply into the body and at a higher resolution than ever before. So that's enabled us to discover new cells, new pathways, new biological circuits and systems that we didn't even know existed. And you know, our imaging technology has even allowed us to discover all new cells. Literally just last week, we just discovered new time cells in the human hippocampus. When they light up, we can see that the brain is actually processing episodic memories. So we're still discovering new cells. Third technology, sensors. So there's chemical sensors, there are uh, biological sensors, and there are electronic sensors. So we have sensors in our watches. I have one in my ring. Um, you know, you can have them in your shirt, you can have them in your baby's diaper. And our sensors are not just recording our vital signs at episodic moments, but it's actually constant real-time changes in your biological process. Big data and machine learning, those sensors are generating huge amounts of data that we are now being able to feed into our models so that we have neural networks and machine learning and AI that allows us to predict not only who will get diseased, but what the, project, the progression of the disease might be, which drugs might be most likely to help. And we're hoping with these models that we can move beyond correlations to actually the cause of disease. So we need to keep feeding it data. And finally, the last technology is smartphones. You know, along comes in the year 2007, you know, the, the, the iPhone, which allows us to collect more data, to keep patients and doctors in communication with each other, which increases the adherence to protocols. It decreases recidivism and things like addiction, and it becomes this magnificent distribution network 
which we will find very useful, I think, in this pandemic. Uh, so we're really seeing this extraordinary explosion of use of these telemedicine opportunities. And I just want to give you a glimpse of the future. This is a, a way the Chinese government and this company, Pingmon, have come up with for addressing the medical needs of people in uh, rural China. So you open the door, close it, you sit down, you have a uh, consultation with your doctor on a video screen. And when you're done, you can come out and the doctor will dispense the medication that he thinks is going to be the cure for your ailment. Uh, the whole thing looks like, to me, medicine of the future. I want to switch gears now a little bit and, and talk about the engineers who are coming into the medical um, sphere and having enormous influence. And this woman is extraordinary. Angela Belcher used to work in energy and nanomaterials. Now she makes biomaterials and, and she really works at that intersection of or organic and inorganic interfaces. So she basically is able to reprogram a virus so that it binds to these nanotubes and the nanotubes are attracted to target proteins on a cancer cell. So she injects them into a mouse body and then she can activate the nanotubes with infrared light, which causes them to fluoresce, which allows a surgeon to actually see the fluorescing cells, which are the tumor cells, because the um, nanotubes are attached to the cancer cells, which enables the surgeon to actually cut away those cells. And this is extraordinary, particularly for the application that she's using it for, uh, which is ovarian cancer. Fewer than half of the women who develop ovarian cancer survive more than five years. And the reason for that is that it often has spread in ways that surgeons can't see. So she's able to cut the, uh, the fatality rates in mice by 40%, but she's going to keep going. She's shooting for 80%. So we're able to reprogram viruses. We're able to harness bacteria. We're able to command these biological entities and systems to do what we want them to do. One of my favorite examples is this company called Lygenesis. The company was based on uh, technology and research done by um, Eric Legasse at the University of Pittsburgh, where he essentially figured out how to convert our lymph nodes into mini bioreactors. And so basically, they can feed stem cells into our um, lymph nodes and induce those stem cells to grow into functional livers, basically at wherever the site of the lymph nodes are around the body. You know, it would only be used in late stage liver disease, but it's extraordinary. It's incredibly creative and innovative and mind blowing. Um, and they're currently working in large animal models uh, right now and preparing for human clinical trials. You know, this could completely obsolete our existing transplant system by allowing us to basically grow compatible organs. You know, right now there are 17,000 people every year in the United States waiting for a liver, but we only perform about 5,000 um, liver transplants per year. And as a result, about 1,700 patients every year die waiting for a liver, and this could be completely transformative. And what we are moving into is a phase of biological design that we've only imagined in science fiction.
I'm going to start with Bowen Zhao. He wants to design custom microbiomes because he understands that the microbiome is the source of disease. And so if we can understand that, we can diagnose and predict many uh, chronic metabolic diseases. He's also, excuse me, interested in creating a whole new class of pharmaceuticals that would be based on the chemicals produced by microbes' metabolic processes. This is Steve Ramirez. His technology is based on infusing the brain's neurons with a particular light-sensitive protein that makes it possible to either activate or deactivate certain cells with pulses of light. So he basically uses optogenetics to erase specific memories in mouse brains. He can erase those memories. He can enhance the memories or diminish the memories. He can even install new memories that the mouse never had before. His work has profound implications for humans of the future. Then there's George Church, also featured in our book. George is probably the most inventive bioengineer of our times. He's maintaining this list. I think there's about 50 alleles and genes on here to enhance humans. CCR5 for HIV protection has also been shown to have cognitive benefits. There's a GRIN2B gene, which is uh, associated with learning and memory. But there's a whole other list of edits that we could make to prepare humans for space travel. So that might include LRP5, uh, which gives you extra strong bones. Or there's four different mutations combined that can increase your resistance to radiation. Or you might simply use pre-implantation uh, genetic screening to find the embryos that are um, going to be selected for small stature, which would be helpful if you're crammed inside a tiny little space capsule. Danny Hillis wrote a fiction piece based on the actual science where the couple walk in and have a consultation with a genetic counselor in the future. He talks about the fact that, you know, your children may find extra appendages very useful. People get excited about tails. They have their pluses and minuses, but you know, additional appendages could be quite handy. And then he goes through a series of accessories and add-ons and basically upsells the genetic counselor might try and uh, convince you to go for. He talks about aesthetics and how parents could get uh, uh, suckered into or trapped into something that's a little too trendy that just feels outmoded 10 or 15 years later. But, oh, bummer, you've been genetically uh, designed to express that feature. David Eagleman has a piece in our book about uh, the possible remorse we may have as parents for some of these choices. You know, there's designing organs. This company, Kaniku, has designed a brain on a chip. Ashigabi uh, is developing a neuron-silicon hybrid chip. You know, right now it's being used for chemical sensing, but in the future it could be used for pharmaceutical development, it could be used for consumer products, it could be used for defense applications. But this fusing between biology and electronics, it's actually happening in a bunch of different companies. There's another company called Cortical Labs in Australia. What they really might be developing here is the first wetware artificial intelligence. But this is all big science and big academia and well-funded medical startups. But, you know, the tools of biology are busting out all over the place and are being used by people in ways that you might not be so aware of. You know, right now it's being taught at postgraduate level. You could do this as graduate level work. 
soon this will probably become undergraduate level molecular biology. But I imagine a time in the not too distant future when it's being taught in high schools or maybe on YouTube. This is Stellark, who's been doing body modifications for decades now. In this particular project, he grew an ear and has inserted it in his forearm and is now working on embedding a microphone, connecting the microphone to the internet and have it be a permanent listening post. But then there's the Odin, a San Francisco-based company that will sell you a DIY CRISPR kit. Uh, this particular kit goes for $1,999, but you can get all of the ingredients, the reagents and the materials you need for only $169. This one's expensive because it actually includes a PCR machine. This is a very consumer-friendly price point, and he has a growing business of selling this equipment to people who are uh, figuring out what they can do with this in their own homes or classrooms. Christina Agapakis is a writer and an artist, but she's a molecular biologist and the creative director at Ginkgo Bioworks. They were talking about what the smell of an extinct flower might be. So she sequenced this plant, sent it off to the paleogenomics lab at UCSC. They came back with the DNA sequence, which codes for particular proteins, which would then produce certain enzymes, which would have certain olfactory characteristics. They hired an artist in Berlin named Sissel Tolas, an olfactory artist, who blended those aromatics together to produce what that perfume would be. And then they collaborated with amazing artist Daisy Ginsberg on an um, installation for uh, Milano Biennale and the Pompidou Center in Paris. It's been exhibited all over the place. It's kind of a mind-expanding project that makes you think, well, good, we can preserve these things and they can always be brought back uh, to life. But perhaps there's a moral hazard uh, issue here. Does it allow us to drive things into extinction because we know we can always bring them back if we need them? really interesting questions that artists ask us to consider. Lynn Hirschman Leeson is a San Francisco-based artist whose work has always been at the leading edge of science and technology. In this case, she has interwoven her art and her artistic archive with the science and technology of antibody fabrication. So she collaborated with Novartis to actually produce an antibody developed based on the letters in her name. She also encoded her entire artistic archive of films and photos and other documents into DNA for all eternity, which opens up the intriguing possibility of you know, the ultimate artistic comeback. Heather Dewey Hagborg picked up cigarette butts and chewing gum and hair samples left behind, sequenced them, and then projected phenotypes based on the sequencing information. These are portrait masks, but the project that I'm most interested in right now is one of her more recent projects, which is called Love Sick, the Transfection. And in this case, she partnered with an antibody discovery company to design a custom retrovirus, which was designed to increase the production of oxytocin. Oxytocin, the neurotransmitter that we release when, uh, based on touch, based on a hug or a kiss, um, an orgasm or breastfeeding. So she wanted to have a retrovirus that would increase the production of oxytocin to spread feelings of affection and attachment and to combat the alienation of the present. So she calls this love sickness. I think of it as perhaps the 
quarantine uh, sickness. But these are the questions that we're grappling with. And we have these incredibly powerful technologies. You know, we are as gods, so we might as well get good at it, as Stuart Brand once famously said. You know, but the problem is we have Paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions, and godlike technology, as uh, the sociobiologist E.O. Wilson once said. So how do we overcome our Paleolithic emotions and our medieval institutions to deploy these godlike technologies in a way that enhances our experience and our relationship to each other and to the planet? And who gets to decide these things? You know, China and India are the largest and fastest growing populations on the planet. You know, they're more likely to be making choices that impact our species than any colloquium in London or Tokyo or, or Boston. And rather than ask whose values should guide us, we'd like to ask a more open-ended question, which is what values do we need to guide us into our neobiological future? The directions and the decisions that we make now about which technologies to develop, how they're designed, how we productize them, how we price them, and how we bring them to market, these decisions are going to be having lasting impacts. And what we imagine becomes what we build. If we move too fast, we risk unintended consequences and backlash from patients and consumers and regulators and religious groups and political upheaval and, and more chaos. But if we move too slow, if we choose not to pursue some of these possibilities, like for instance, eliminating genetically inherited diseases, well, that feels like a crime against humanity. I mean, what if your great-grandchild sues her parents for not genetically engineering her to protect her from disease? or to protect or, or to give her advantages that other people have been given because their parents did choose the genetic enhancements. So maybe she's genetically impeded from competing effectively. How are we gonna tell the difference between these choices and these decisions? These are not easy questions. And something people thought was outrageous or unnatural, uh, unnatural 40 years ago, like test tube babies, you know, might now be considered not only normal, but a basic human right. So the things that we're shocked by today, how many of those are gonna be basic human rights in another 40 years or 20 years or 10 years? So this is what we're working on at Neolife. And if you'd like to follow our progress, uh, you can check out our website at www.neo.life. And we've just published a series of these visions, which were conversations from the scientists and science fiction writers and artists that I talked about tonight. You all realize that we are not humanity's final creation. Being a homo sapiens at the top of the food chain in the 21st century is an enormous privilege, but it brings with it an obligation and some awesome responsibility. So you should have a say. And our question for you is, what is your vision? for the future of our species. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jane. What we're seeing now, I think this is there's a parallel to this in both genetic, genetic modification world as well as the synthetic biology world, where is the, with COVID, we're, we're watching science happen in real time and we're watching scientists uh, 
conflict with each other in real time. We're watching various uh, press outlets pick up, uh, you know, a given voice and then put it out there. Um, but I think this happens in synthetic biology and the world that you're working in. This happens in genetic uh, modification as well. Um, and I just wanted to get a sense from you if you could reflect on, you know, the controversial nature of uh, and kind of, in a way, sensationalist, sensationalistic uh, nature of synthetic biology as well as the kind of work that's happening now for COVID or these other things and, and how, how the scientists are dealing with that and learning to figure this out. So um, it's, it's unfortunate the way media works um, because the sensationalism is what gets people's attention. Um, we have an opportunity to then explain and go more deeply into what's actually happening um, and what's the reality behind it. Um, you know, I, I've been concerned that, um, you know, anti-vaxxers and anti-GMO uh, conversations uh, would dominate um, where we were going with these tools and what we could accomplish with these tools. And I think the pandemic has given us an opportunity to really see science at its best, um, the way people can collaborate, the way they can come together for a common good. You know, the thing that impresses me the most about um, synthetic biology is that once you have these basic tools of molecular biology, genetic engineering, um, being able to harness bacteria and viruses and, um, and that sort of thing, you know, the question is, what are you then going to do with it? And I think our scientists today are being asked to um, to take their immense tool sets, right? I mean, they they do 10 or 15 years of deep study to get their MD or their PhD. And they also have to be, you know, essentially computer hackers. They have to be incredibly digitally literate and they have to understand something about AI. I mean, it is true that we're all becoming far more interdependent because no one person can understand all of that. Um, but the people who can be an expert in one field and then venture into a new field as a novice, bringing that skill set with them, you know, that's kind of the thinking that we need going forward to have the kind of breakthroughs that people like Angela Belcher and, and others um, are showing us the way for. I'm curious, as, uh, as you talked with all of these um, biologists and uh, technology uh, kind of inventors. Was there is there a next technology that um, that they were looking at or or excited about that that isn't ready yet that that is going to enable another wave? Um, so I think for many of them, um, we have these incredible tools already, and our technology is out in front of our science. And so I think there's been this spurt of um, innovation. And um, what most of the people that we're talking to now are thinking about is um, how will AI transform their understanding of what they're trying to accomplish? We are in a period now where it's less about um, huge, new, unanticipated technologies, and it's more about taking the technologies we currently have and using those to understand our biology better than we currently do. Oh, that's... That's a pretty interesting state of things. Um, yeah, where I guess the debts now are. So I, mean, I, have, I have this theory that you know our technology is out in front of our science and our business is out in front of our technology, and we've got these amazing tools right now. So you know, yes, will there be next gen sequencing for sure? I mean, the sequencing is now down. There's this 
machine called the Oxford Nanopore, which is literally a pocket sequencer. You know, um, the fact that we can do PCR now in less than 24 hours. I mean, it's right now, I think it's about those types of advances more than a whole new field that we've never heard of before uh, that's going to come in and completely transform everything. It's like we need more data. Yeah, we need more time to process all of that. Things will shrink. They'll get faster. But, you know, we, we've got a lot of science to do. Nice. Well, yeah, it seems those tools are now they're moving faster than even Moore's law. Um, and so just keeping up with those. Events I, you know, I, I felt really bad not putting that slide up because I got all these conferences and we see the same slide, which is the cost of, uh, whoops, I got to go this way, the cost of sequencing going like this and then Moore's law going like this, you know, it's like, right. But I, yeah, without that visual, it's, it's way off of the Moore's law chart, which seemed like the, the fastest thing that we could imagine, but clearly biology is now moving faster. And I think, um, I mean, I think you pointed out a lot of things that are happening now without our intervention, without a lot of discussion. Um, and But I'm curious, what are the things that you personally are most concerned about? Mm. I, you know, I am as excited um, about the possibilities as I am concerned about the um, distortion of the potential. You know, having lived through the digital revolution, um, you know, I saw our visions become reality. And then I also saw them get um, distorted by um, business models that were no longer really um, in the best interests of us as individuals and societies. And so I can imagine that playing out again, uh, which is why I started Neolife, essentially, because A, I think it's incredibly interesting and fascinating. It's going to have an enormous impact. Um, and B, there will be enormous wealth created. And C, there will be enormous uh, disruption. And so what did we learn from the digital revolution? Um, you know, one thing that's clear to me is that as long as everybody was making money, um, you know, there was, there was little call for regulation. And by the time it became apparent um, that there was need for regulation, um, in a certain sense, it was too late and, and, and the companies were already too big and it's hard to, um, to shift that direction. Um, but this is different. This is life and death. And um, these are people's um, personal burdens you know, to bear in a physical, uh, emotional um, and psychological way. And it's a highly regulated um, world that we are now entering into. And so um, I, I worry almost about too much regulation at the same time as I worry about not enough of the right kind of regulation. And, um, and that's why I feel like we need to just start with education. We need to start with the realization that these technologies and tools are out there. They could have these types of uh, positive benefits, they could have these types of negative ones. Um, you know, the thing that people are really, really focused on right now, um, I think may turn out to be less important in the grand scheme of things, in the long now scheme of things um, than others, and that is the notion of privacy. And, you know, so much um, has been slowed by the need to protect um, patient records um, from potential discrimination. And I totally understand that and I support that. Um, in the long run, I wonder if the interests of public health won't supersede our interests, our individual um, uh, privacy um, desire. Um, 
one thing I worry a lot about are brain computer interfaces. I mean, I think that is a, you know, to me, that's like a final frontier. That's sort of, maybe that's an extension of privacy, but, um, you know, I, I just need to, um, see how we could possibly move forward with that kind of technology in a way that isn't just a real violation of, um, not even necessarily privacy, but like who we are, you know, it's like, my genome is one thing and, you know, you might discriminate against me because I have the APOE4 gene for um, Alzheimer's or something. That's that's something that we can deal with with regulation and um, consumer protections and so forth. But once you start, you know, looking inside my head, uh, I think that's really kind of the scary one. We've had several questions that I think relate to um, the basically the socioeconomic status of how this will roll out into the world. And, um, you know, while we may have, you know, one to $2,000 CRISPR kits, um, the way some of these things, um, you know, choices about your kids' eye color and uh, predispositions for IQ and things like that um, clearly aren't going to have a, an even rollout into the world. But um, are there are there worries that you have in this space of, of how these things may be um, Oh, absolutely. Kind of distributed. Absolutely. How they're priced, who has access, um, you know, also um, sort of who, um, is it a matter of, of having to keep up? You know, it's like you may not, may not want that cognitive enhancement, but if you don't get it, you won't get a job as a computer programmer. Um, you know, I think these are the kinds of very stark sort of black and white choices that people will be confronted with in the future, um, you know, which is why concepts of um, universal health care, universal basic income go hand in hand with visions of the future uh, because they conveniently erase, you know, those types of um, inequities. Um, you know, I don't know that I have an answer. And, um, you know, what I understand are economic forces as they have worked up until now. And what I also understand is this technology will transform us uh, in ways that might obviate um, the entire capitalist structure. I mean, if we need far less land and water and other inputs to grow our food, if we can grow the things we need, the materials and the furniture and the food and the medicines, you know, if we have 3D printers where we can just download a file and print out, you know, the vaccine or the um, uh, or, or the food or, you know, the, the next uh, thing that I need, uh, the next order I need for my spaceship, um, you know, these things start to become so outside our current experience that it's hard to connect the dots. So um, that's what we're trying to do is like understand where we are with these technologies, how long they're going to take to develop, how long um, it will be until they're deployed, uh, and then just imagine the, uh, the economic models that go along with that. Indeed. Um, so Kevin Kelly uh, has another question. Um, I think, so he, he asks, describe the most optimistic neobiological future that you can imagine in a century from now. Um, you know, we can imagine that uh, public health um, is going to require all of our genomes to be sequenced. Um, that, um, That's not going to be 100 years. 
<laughs> oh yeah, no, the, we'll be there. We'll be there long before that. But I think the um, you, you know as, making that as an assumption that um, that that so much of our genetic information is going to become part of the healthcare system, and that uh, it will also include um, some of the advantages that can be that can be put out there. Are there um, what? What do you imagine as some of the greatest benefits um, that you that you want, um, you know, as yeah. as your own self or as a as a mother of other children? Um, you know, what are what are uh, what are some of your thoughts on the future of this? So, um, I imagine a future where, um, uh, first of all, genetically inherited diseases have been eliminated. Um, if we have a disease, we quickly know how to treat it because we sequenced you at birth. We understand what your um, risk factors are, um, and you know we have rapid vaccine and um, we have first of all rapid testing. We have rapid um, therapeutic development, and we have um, uh, prediction models. So, uh, so we can basically address disease. Um, I imagine that we have. Um, converted from industrial manufacturing, from extracted economies to um, biomanufacturing and to growing things with living systems. So we, as a result of that, have been able to clean up our planet. Um, we are living in a continuum uh, with all the other uh, biological systems on the planet. And so um, we are no longer um, extracting and polluting, but um, harnessing and shepherding and um, and growing things uh, in a way that um, puts us in a more sustainable position. Um, I mean, to me, that is, that's the vision. I think right now, Juan Enrique has this magnificent essay in our book uh, where he talks about the fact that, you know, it's one-tenth of one percent difference in the DNA between, you know, me and somebody, um, you know, from a, a tribe in Africa. And yet, you know, we don't deal with even that level of diversity very well. You know, what I think we can look forward to and what I'm super excited about is a greater species diversity among hominids. Um, and I look forward to the fear of those differences um, going away because um, there's so many benefits to having more diversity. You know, that's it's kind of a way to future-proof our uh, uh, an, an ecosystem is, is to have more diversity, right? It's monocultures are, are at great risk. Um, and so maybe we need more types of hominids. Um, if that's what we care about is protecting hominids. I mean, we have to consider the possibility that global warming may not be good for homo sapiens, but, you know, EO Wilson basically said, you know, if homo sapiens were wiped out, there's very few other species that would be negatively impacted. Whereas if you wiped out the ants, you know, it would completely destroy entire ecosystems. So I think that's something we have to sort of consider. I think some of the decisions that we make in the aesthetic biology space are going to be heritable versus unheritable. And that's a pretty big question, right? Like, so questions you make for yourself or even your kids versus their kids um, are, that becomes a, a vastly bigger question of um, if your kids or your grandkids are saddled with a question that you are trying to solve for, you know, some very localized 
uh, problem that you had in terms of time and space uh, versus um, the questions that they have for their own generations years into the future. Um, you know, we can imagine that maybe they will have the ability to undo them, but maybe they don't. Um, but I just wanted to touch base on this heritable versus unheritable questions um, and where where either both the scientists that you've worked with as well as yourself uh, feel about that. Right. Well, um, I mean, I think that is the, uh, that's the huge unanswerable question. Um, how could we possibly make decisions on behalf of humans that haven't been born yet? I just don't see a way to work through the legal issues um, surrounding that. Um, you know, but our attitudes about these things change. And, um, you know, today's legal um, system, our understanding of, you know, our rights as individuals, our natural rights, um, you know, as a, as a legal concept that dates back, you know, hundreds of years, uh, might not pertain in the future. Um, and I think, you know, using today's ethics to anticipate that are, um, uh, is, is impossible. Um, you know, I think perhaps one of the uh, tenets of our manifesto for the future of our species could be something along the lines of we should never test something in the germ line if we could test it in somatic cells first. In other words, um, you know, do things that are um, restricted to just one generation and that do not uh, persist across future generations. Um, I think that's got to be uh, sort of a basic understanding um, for now until we understand more um, what the consequences of our actions are and, um, and or until our, um, our attitudes and our understanding and our um, society change. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's a terrifying prospect. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, there's, it, it seems kind of simple in concept to to say that we don't want to affect the germline, but when it comes to like removing, let's say if you're removing Alzheimer's from the germline. Um, and so, you know, right now we would assume that that is a totally reasonable assumption and I can't imagine how it will yeah. be in a future generation. Oh. Uh, but, uh, but that is, you know, you're, you're now, um, you're now limiting yourself from being able to uh, to remove something like a, a genetic disease that um, that would have so much benefit going forward, um, and so maybe every generation has to make that decision for themselves. Um, well, and here's the thing. Here's the thing. So, uh, two responses to that. One is um, we do not have to do a germline edit to remove Alzheimer's. We could simply do embryo selection. Right. So if you've got that gene, you know, we're just not going to implant that. And, you know, right now, something like one to two percent of um, births in this country come through in vitro fertilization. You know, the numbers are much higher in places uh, like uh, Norway and um, and Sweden, I believe, and Finland, uh, the Nordic countries, um, you know, with some of the big tech companies offering women the opportunity to freeze their eggs and they're offering couples the opportunity to freeze their embryos. Once you've got multiple embryos, it seems kind of a no-brainer to sequence them to choose the ones you want. Um, and so I can see us in that way genetically manipulating our, our species in a way that doesn't require cutting into the, the germline. It's just a matter of who we select. And again, that's, that is even on a continuum of, you know, we tend to choose people who are 
um, racially uh, and socially and um, you know economically similar to ourselves. So we're doing that already. We just now have slightly different tools um, for doing it. Um, and we may find ourselves selecting embryos that don't have the risk of Alzheimer's disease, but they may not have the risk of, you know, mental illness and bipolar disorder, which, you know, could have tremendous implications for our society going forward, since such a huge percentage of our creative class actually suffer from, um, from those problems. Um, and maybe that's part of what makes them, you know, the creative genius. So, you know, we're, we're already doing this. The question is, how much more efficient and effective do our tools get? And how big an impact will this have overall on our species? Um, as people get enhanced, um, you know, they're going to be different from the ones that are unenhanced. They're going to have um, some kind of advantages, let's say. Um, and do we want to document them? How are the scientists in these fields talking about ethics, ethical questions at this scale um, in a, that you have seen um, aside from just continuing to do their work in the labs? Well, I mean, I'll start by answering the last part of your question first, which is they have very few uh, venues for expressing those ideas and those thoughts. And, um, you know, the bioethics field in general um, is sort of prescribed uh, and it tends to be relegated to one field and one type of scientific endeavor, whereas in fact these implications um, are interdependent and interwoven. And um, the more they connect to other fields, uh, the fewer opportunities there are to discuss that. One notable example or, uh, or difference there is um, CRISPR technology. And I think there's a lot of um, ways in which that technology has united scientists across all these different fields. Uh, to come together and have conversations about what we can do with CRISPR, um, whether it's in uh, a medical field, a pharmaceutical field, uh, agricultural field, or or what have you. Um, so I think, in short, I think scientists are definitely interested in these conversations. They totally want to have them. I mean, I've heard from scientists who say, we do not want to make these choices. You know, don't make our values the prevailing ones. We think everybody should be engaged in understanding these technologies so that we get a broad cross-section of, um, of inputs about how to use this going forward. Um, you know, to your idea of, uh, or to the question about um, enhancements, I mean, if you take an example like athletes, for instance, you know, I mean, we already have this in a sense. Which of our athletes are blood doping or using steroids or, you know, what, who knows what genetic modifications they could already be using that we just haven't figured out yet. Um, you know, will that continue? Sure. I'm sure that people will do, you know, silent or secretive uh, genetic manipulations um, going forward. And I'm equally sure that there will be people like the bodybuilders, you know, who are clearly uh, using um, banned substances um, you know, will there be the naturals and the unnaturals? You know, will there be a social appreciation for the naturals? And, you know, then it's this sort of slippery, you know, unclear line, like what is natural and what is not? And, you know, that line's going to keep shifting um, as we go forward. And so, um, so, yes, I mean, I think these will be questions that we're 
already grappling with, um, and we will continue to grapple with, you know, going forward, and they'll get more uh, confusing. Um, I mean, is being a natural better than being enhanced? I think it's your point of view. I think it depends on who you are and what you value. And, you know, I think one thing's clear is we're not all going to value the same thing, um, which is a good thing, I think. Um, and the question, too, is, you know, who's keeping score and what are you using to keep score? And if money is what you're using to keep score, uh, you know, then, yeah, these things are bad and people who are enhanced should have, uh, you know, additional, I don't know, maybe there's a fantastic uh, Kurt Vonnegut short story in, um, I believe it was Welcome to the Monkey House, where um, in an attempt to make everybody equal, they made the ballerina uh, wear sandbags. They made the genius have crashing headaches. Um, you know, it's like, are, are we headed into a situation like that? Or, you know, can the genetically enhanced genius be genetically enhanced, but can the person who chose to remain natural and perhaps do artisanal work with their hands, you know, somehow be equally valued for our society? Kevin Kelly also uh, is asking, I think, a, a kind of the way this is playing out about in nationalistic ways. Uh, you know, I know that, you know, uh, Europe has been so traditionally against genetic modification and things like food crops. Um, but um, so we have other countries like China and India um, that seem to be vastly more open to some, especially China. Um, and then Russia, we don't know, South America and Africa. Um, where are, have you been seeing um, some of the national concerns play out in this space? So is there, is there a space, is there, are there national areas that are moving faster or slower? Um, what's your take on that? So in particularly in terms of uh, genetic modifications for food or? Or just some of the, I mean, the neobiological labs that you're talking to. I mean, I know most of the ones that it were in the book are, are U.S. based, but um, are you seeing, you know, are, are those labs worried more about what's happening in China um, or India or um, what's your take on some of the nationalistic divides in this space? Well, that's what's so interesting. And this is where, you know, I think uh, diversity uh, will manifest itself across all of these um, uh, verticals, if you will. Um, you know, the, um, the Africans uh, are farmers are, you know, very upset that Europeans have, um, have declared that GMO foods are non-desirable because, you know, they're suffering from banana blight, you know, uh, they're suffering from um, problems with their, um, oh, how do you say that? Um, uh, eggplant, sorry, eggplant. Um, you know, they have a number of crops that are um, impacted and for which there are uh, genetically modified alternatives. And so they want access to them. That's what they need to feed their families. Um, you know, in China, uh, you know, they make very different choices about what is considered a viable embryo. Uh, there's a famous example of um, the uh, CRISPR scientists' uh, international gathering where uh, um, an American scientist was saying that, um, you know, in America, a deaf child is not considered uh, undesirable and that a deaf family would welcome another deaf child into their culture. And the Chinese scientist famously says we would consider that a non-viable embryo. Uh, and, you know, I think we cannot um, come up with one dictate that's going to make sense across all national borders and across all um, 
ethnicities and across all uh, societies and all um, cultural units. And I think that's interesting. I think those differences are going to play out in ways that ultimately could be beneficial for our species. Um, but I think there will be things that, you know, people are genuinely horrified by. What have you changed your mind about um, after um, starting this process? Um, I suspect that there was all kinds of original excitement in various parts of this. Um, but are there parts of it that you have changed your mind about um, or that you feel as though you would like to impart the other half of this question is that you would like to impart back into this field um, uh, in terms of um, either questions or excitement that you wish would happen faster um, and that, you know, something that you could maybe modify your own self or your own next generation with. Um, so, um, yeah, so what are, what are, what have you changed your mind about? What are your highest concerns and what are your greatest dreams? Wow. Okay. Um, uh, so what have I changed my mind about? I was far less nuanced in my um, understanding of these technologies and their benefits. And um, I was just completely bowled over by the possibilities of the science and the technology. Um, so I think if anything, what I've changed my mind about is how fast we could move forward. Um, and I think I've also become a bigger fan of um, intelligent regulation uh, than I have ever been before in my life. Um, and I think that's been an interesting process that I'm still kind of working through because, you know, you can say regulation, but it's regulation by whom? Um, and, you know, are there state regulations? Are there federal regulations? Are there um, international regulations? Is it all of the same? Are there regulations the way a global community of scientists understand it, as opposed to, um, you know, regulations by country? You know, that's, that's something that I'm still trying to parse. Um, you know, my, my biggest hope um, is to eliminate disease and to um, convert us from, you know, a society where 70% of people who are sick are, um, are sick because of what they eat and how they live and um, just a lack of access to clean food and clean water and, um, and an understanding of, you know, an, an ability to do the things that they know will make them healthier. Um, so it, it kind of starts there uh, with the health prospects. I got into this through food and um, mental health and cognitive decline. Those were the three kind of areas that um, initially opened my eyes to the way these technologies were um, advancing. And, you know, I think, um, so I think my biggest hope is um, to not have, you know, uh, an epidemic of people suffering from Alzheimer's, uh, to not have obesity and diabetes and genetically inherited diseases. You know, taking it a step beyond that, um, is cleaning up our environment by um, by harnessing living systems and using living systems more intelligently instead of you know chopping things down and paving them over and uh, pumping a lot of chemicals into them. I think there's ways that um, you know I, I I was rowing down the Colorado River through the Grand Canyon with these giant oars and I remember trying to go in a particular direction and I wrenched my shoulder. It's a 14 foot oar with I forget what the water pressure is in there. Um, and just 
sort of instead realizing that if you just follow the bubbles in the stream, you can just float. And then you just use your oars in these very small ways to kind of adjust. And I would just like to see Homo sapiens figure out how to live in greater harmony in ways that, you know, cause, um, require fewer inputs, re, you know, cause less uh, damage and pollution and yield higher results. Cool. Well, thank you so much uh, for doing this. It's uh, all new format. I'm excited about doing uh, so many more of the talks for long now in this format. And I'm so excited that you were able to do the first one with us and, uh, and slog through our interesting new technology choices as we do it. Um, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Shane. This is Stuart Brand again. If you enjoyed this talk, consider becoming a member of the Long Now Foundation. For less than the price of a book or movie, monthly membership supports this series and keeps you connected to a whole world of long-term thinking. Thank you for listening.